0: This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jeff Deist. Great to be with all of you, and stay tuned to the end of the show, because we got a big announcement about some changes coming to this very show, and you may have been wondering about this. So that will be at the end. So you got to listen... And then all will be revealed. But in the meantime, some of you may know that there was a little bit of a brouhaha in the world of economics this past week because the New York Times published what might be uncharitably called a bit of a puff piece about Stephanie Kelton, who is a professor at SUNY Stony Brook and also really probably the most prominent current face of MMT or modern monetary theory which, of course, we've discussed on the show with a a few different guests and I hope somewhat thoroughly debunked, but that's not so much the subject today. Uh, We're joined by our great friend, Dr. Peter Klein. Many of you know him as a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, also a professor of business and economics at Baylor University. And Peter, so what's been going on this week is that some pretty prominent people, Noah Smith, an economist formerly at Bloomberg and and no less than Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary and President of Harvard, had some pretty harsh criticisms about the New York Times article. And this was viewed by a lot of feminists, male and female variety, as sexist towards Stephanie Kelton. So, boy, oh boy, there's a lot there. I guess before we get into that, Peter, let's, let's talk about... Economics is a profession, which you've had many decades working in both academic and, and professional settings. There's this idea that economists relative to other social scientists are more conservative. And there's actually been some data and some studies around that. So so what? give us your take on that for starters.
1: Yeah, Jeff, um, it's a great question. And thanks for having me on uh, the show. Uh, it is It is true that compared to many other academic disciplines – Economists are more likely to be sympathetic to free markets, are more likely to think that a government should play a limited role in the economy and to have have social and political views that are uh, at least not sort of on the far left. But remember, this is, you know, that's sort of damning with faint praise. In other words, yeah, compared to the median sociologist or anthropologist. The typical economist probably seems like a far right or on the economic sphere, you know, extreme free market fetishist. Again, only because most economists are at least a little bit sympathetic to markets, whereas most academics in other disciplines, you know, to call them Marxist would be maybe an insult to Marxism. I mean, some of them are so far out there in their complete uh, disdain for private property and markets and any kind of decentralized solutions. So uh, most of, you're right, there are a lot of surveys, uh, attempts to study political and social views among people in different professions and within different disciplines in academia. And, you know, the median economist is what in the wider world, you know, has a profile that would we would call something like sort of center left, Right. Like a, like a Larry Summers type, more likely to be a member of the Democratic Party than the Republican Party or the Libertarian Party or to be unaffiliated. Um, someone who uh, is not a socialist, right, is not for government ownership of the means of production, is in favor of some form of private property and markets, but with a heavy dose of government intervention to regulate health and safety and to bribe the so-called you know social safety net. And of course, to have monetary policy and fiscal policy to steer the economy. So there are relatively few economists who would favor laissez-faire the way that Mises or Rothbard would. But economists are certainly more sympathetic to that kind of a view than, than would be most other academics. So by contrast... Economists seem right wing or free market, but again, not compared to the general population, only compared to the rest of the
0: academy, which is on the far, far, far left on average. Mm. Well, this almost sounds like the left's argument. When you study something, you actually become more sympathetic to markets, right? And the left makes this point about why so many professors in general are left wing, because when you care enough to go get a PhD, you've self-selected. That's a good point.
1: It's a very good point. People, I think there's both a selection effect. I mean, people who are just completely unsympathetic to markets at all are unlikely to choose economics as a field of study this is a point made by hayek in his famous article in the 1940s on why uh, intellectuals tend toward socialism but there's also kind of a what you might call a treatment effect which is what you point out i mean the more you study markets and the more you study government intervention in markets uh, on average you you know the, the more you uh, learn to be sympathetic to market solutions and less sympathetic to state imposed alternatives
0: so in academic economics let's say university settings, journal settings. How male is it? I mean, you, you've you been around. Is it all dudes?
1: Yeah, I don't have the exact figures in front of me. But yes, like many other academic disciplines, uh, economics, uh, you know, PhD economists are much more likely to be male than female. Uh, that's starting to change. It has changed quite a lot in recent years in that the number of people and the proportion of Males to females entering PhD programs has fallen steadily over the last few decades. There are other academic professions, you know, certainly uh, things like nursing and some of the other humanities and social sciences disciplines that are much more heavily female. Uh, economics is less uh, is less um, heavily male than engineering and some of the other STEM fields. But there's certainly been a lot of uh, efforts to increase the representation of women in the profession and leadership positions and so forth. Uh, members of, you know, leaders in professional societies and editors of journals and so forth. There's certainly been a lot of discussion and a lot of positive attempts to increase the represent- representation of females uh, in those positions because economics is still perceived as, you know, more of a male friendly discipline than a
0: female one. Well, we mentioned Summers, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary. You may recall this, Peter. When he was Harvard president, this is the early to mid-2000s, I think. Right. Uh, You know, well after serving under Bill Clinton, um, he basically said to a mixed group, including some female professors, that, you know what? The the fact that men gravitate towards sciences is not just a social construct. There may be something to it. And he got himself in some hot water, so I guess when <laughs> when he chimed in this week about the Stephanie Kelton article, it brought up some bad <laughs> vibes for some women. Yeah, you're exactly right. But Jeff on the Summers issue from several years
1: ago that that episode really illustrates how talking about issues of gender and other demographic you know characteristics in this context. Um, it, it's really kind of a third rail. I mean, if, if you listen to the interview, listen to the speech, it was actually a panel discussion, or you look at the transcript. What Summers actually said is something like, I'm paraphrasing, you know, among the six potential explanations for the underrepresentation of women in uh, the STEM fields is interest, differences in interest and aptitude on average. He didn't say that was the explanation. He said that is one of the six or so explanations that is out there. And then he mainly talked about the other five. But the fact that he mentioned that even that he mentioned that as a potential mechanism worthy of study and analysis was enough to cause him to be removed as president of Harvard. He was actually removed over that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean now of course there there may be other dynamics at play. He he was a sort of a strong-willed president and maybe the board, you know, had it out for him for other reasons, but that was the that was certainly the proximate reason why he was removed from the Harvard presidency because he was con- that was considered too offensive
0: a, a remark to to make in in public. Well, I'd like to apprise our listeners of something with which they may not be familiar. We have the good fortune here at the Mises Institute of working with and getting to know a lot of young people. Some of them even become summer fellows in pursuit of their own PhDs, and then they go out, obviously, in the job market. But Peter, people may not know that even to apply for a professorship job today, you often have to produce what's called a diversity statement. And I went and looked at an execrable website called Inside Higher Ed. I don't recommend you go there. And there is an article there called "What to Avoid and What to Include in Your Diversity Statement." And man, oh man, I mean, this stuff is really spooky.
1: Yeah, you're right. So that is a trend in academia. I think it hasn't become standard for economics positions yet. My guess is it probably will be at some point in the future. But in a lot of disciplines, you know, what's interesting, even disciplines like biology, uh, you know, or, or, or physics, that on paper. Uh, You know, for which gender issues would not be particularly salient. Um, Yes, to get a job, it is required to submit a statement about one's commitment to diversity as a professional and so forth. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of recognition, I think, that um, much of this is sort of pro forma that people are not, you know, serious or, or sincere in what they say about diversity. They're writing what they think they need to write uh, to be hired. So it's a little bit like diversity training programs in the workforce. Well, of course, we have them in academia, like, it, like most other large organizations do. I think there's increasing recognition, even among proponents of greater attention to diversity issues, that the standard kind of training mechanisms and programs or requiring someone to write a one pager on their commitment, that these are really very superficial attempts to get at the underlying issues and may in many cases actually backfire that some of these training programs and the requirement to produce certain documents can actually exacerbate gender or racial tension and conflict in the workplace rather than alleviate it.
0: Well, I hope it's superficial or pro forma because it's not how we ought to be hiring people in this world. But nonetheless, Peter, I think let's take a school like UC Berkeley. I mean, if you're applying there and you happen to be a 28-year-old white male, uh, you're probably going to have to have a, a, a diversity statement or some sort of commitment to that that's, that's totally apart from your substantive work or output um, to even be considered. I mean, this is a reality. Yeah, I, you're, you're exactly
1: right. I mean, that for, for all candidates, uh, you know, some, some formal statement about how they feel about these issues is increasingly a requirement for lots of jobs. I mean, you know, of course, there are all sorts of issues about um, – uh, as you pointed out, you know, is that is that related to one's capability uh, to perform the role? But also, is it fair to require people to disclose, uh, you know, deeply held personal views on difficult issues uh, in, in order to, you know, be qualified for, for employment? So, yeah, these are really uh, – there's, uh, there's sort of been a sea change in the last couple of decades, and academia, as often – is the case is sort of at the frontier of some of these new movements, but I suspect that we're going to see it increasingly at Fortune 500 companies and, and all other walks of life.
0: Right. And as women and other minorities get into positions and start um, issuing opinions, let's say on Twitter, which is a pretty rough and tumble place, the question becomes, should they be subjected to the same kinds of criticisms and in the same manner? As yeah. men, or should we change? And I guess the word is feminize our approach to discussion and debate in academic circles. And here's a great example of that. A couple of months back, there was a woman named Isabella Weber. She's a prof at UMass Amherst. And she wrote an article for The Guardian, really terrible article, uh, saying that uh, price controls are a powerful tool to fight inflation. So, no less than Paul Krugman chimes in and says, No, 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 we don't want price controls. God bless him. And then a couple of days later, and I'm going to quote him his tweet, deleting with extreme apologies my tweet about Isabella Weber on price controls. No excuses. It's always wrong to use that tone, tone, against anyone arguing in good faith. And by that, he means people on the left, people on the right can never be, have good faith, by the way. <laughs> no matter how much you disagree, especially when there's so much bad faith out there. And it just struck me that what a weaselly little Thing and and why shouldn't Isabella Weber have to roll up her sleeves and be engaged in the rough and tumble of Twitter if she yeah. wants to? Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the 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 um,
1: article or the the incident with which we started the conversation, uh, where Stephanie Kelton wrote this piece, or sorry, there was a a, a puff profile, a, a, a sort of fawning profile of Stephanie Kelton in the New York Times, and and you know. All of the sort of mainstream center-left types you mentioned several of them already. Uh, they pointed out that the you know that MMT is not a serious you know set of doctrines or ideas, but just sort of a political manifesto. Nobody in the academy takes MMT seriously. Why on earth was the New York Times giving space to this glowing profile of Stephanie Kelton? The response was, as you pointed out, uh, well, because Stephanie Kelton is female. Uh, you know, sort of piling on and 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 criticizing her inclusion here seems unfair. it looks like bullying and because the author of the piece is female uh, that was also thrown into the conversation that well, especially you know male economists should not be criticizing the author of this piece because she's because she's female, I mean as you as you point out, I think what makes a lot of people uncomfortable is understanding the ground rules, okay, so is it the case that um you know people of all genders, all ethnicities, and so forth should have their words, their ideas on Twitter evaluated, criticized, praised, whatever, you know independently of their demographic characteristics, or should the demographic demographic characteristics of the tweeter? be taken into account in how one engages with the tweets. Or for that matter, Jeff, to bring up a closely related issue, how should a person's academic record be scrutinized? As we're having this conversation, there's a lot of discussion about uh, uh, Joe Biden's latest set of nominees to the Federal Reserve Board. One of them is a woman named Lisa Cook. It turns out that Lisa Cook and I were graduate school classmates at Berkeley. She was a couple years behind me, but I would consider us to be friends or friendly, even though we haven't had a lot of contact since grad school. She's now a professor at Michigan State, and she has been nominated for one of the vacant uh, seats on the Federal Reserve Board. She's also a black female. And so, as you would expect, there's been a lot of conversation about how she would be the first black female uh, you know, member of the board and at the same time. There has been much discussion, not only in you know, congressional hearings, as is often the case when someone with maybe contribu- controversial views is nominated, but also on social media about her, her qualifications for the role. And, you know, in many ways, she has a different kind of a profile than the profile of most of the academics who have served on the board. She's not a specialist in monetary economics. She hasn't written a lot on that particular topic. Her, her area of expertise is more on economic development, but particularly on racial issues, race relations, racial bias and uh, financial markets and so forth. Now one could argue that these are legitimate, you know, from the Fed's point of view. Well, we want someone on the board who does specifically those things, but uh the Biden nomination did not make that argument at all. And so because Lisa is a black female, it has been there's been sort of a backlash against the criticism of Lisa. And and it's kind of like the argument with Stephanie Kelton. People say, well, uh you know, her record is being scrutinized more carefully. She's being criticized more harshly than previous nominees uh, to the board of governors. I think objectively, so number one, I think objectively that isn't the case. Uh, I don't see anything in the discussion of her qualifications or her characteristics that is any different in tone, any different in substance from the discussion of any other nominees, characteristics, or qualifications. But, you know, even if it were, the related question is well should there be a different standard? I mean, should a female academic, a female professional, a black female academic or professional should that person be held to a different standard? Uh, maybe the criticism should be a little bit lighter or it should be a little bit uh, you know more friendly. People should you know back off. Because, uh, you know, because we we want a person with those characteristics to serve in that role. No one will come out and and have a very candid conversation about these issues. But in my mind, that's really what's going on. Is she being criticized more harshly than others? And and if not, then is that OK or, or should a different standard apply? Well, I think the answer is no. A different standard shouldn't apply yeah well, that's the conventional of course view in most scientific and professional fields as 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 we know you know that is not the view uh, that obtains in sort of contemporary discussion of these issues we We had a conversation on our campus earlier this week about uh, uh about diversity and and how it plays out in various uh, parts of academia you know th- there are two conventional views one is if, if we if we make the issue race there there's a conventional sort of colorblind view people should be judged on the content of their character and not on their you know superficial demographic characteristics that was kind of the liberal the left liberal view uh, for you know since the 19 since the civil rights movement certainly since the 1950s 60s 70s and if, as we all know that view has largely been displaced by what you might call the anti-racist or anti-racism view which holds that people should be judged on the basis of these characteristics such that, you know, as a society, we can remedy past harms, you know, by one group against other groups by sort of doing the reverse, right, by compensating. And I think that dynamic, the tension between those two views, that's what we see playing out in these discussions of the Stephanie Kelton piece or Lisa Cook's nomination or any other related issue.
0: But it also goes to the very question of what's the point of economics? Is it a social and political program, or is yeah. it a, a truth-seeking program? Yeah,
1: that, that, it's a good point, Jeff. I think there are two there are two layers to it, right? So one issue is on the merits. You know, is there such a thing as you know male economics or female economics in terms of the actual theorizing and and the research program? You know, Mises, of course, would argue very strongly. Of course not. I mean, that would be an example of what Mises called polylogism. You know, of course, in Mises' day, the argument was whether there's, you know, economic theory for the, uh, you know, for the capitalists. And is there a different economic theory for the working class? And, of course, Mises rejected that distinction and said that economic theories are either correct or incorrect, independent of the characteristics of who is writing them. Right. So that's one issue. I mean, some of the sort of uh, more modern approaches would challenge that. And they would argue in favor of what Mises would call polylogism, right? That, no, there's, you know, there's male theory and there's female theory. They're different on the merits. And we should not try to pretend that the gender of the theorist is irrelevant. I think most of us, and most academics, most people, I suspect, if you really press them on it, would say, well, yeah, obviously that can't be true. You know, math, logic and so forth are uh the the truth of those statements is not dependent on the characteristics of the people who make them. But I think a lot of this is really not about that issue. It's about more of a sort of a sociological issue, right? If we think that, you know, even if we think that economic theories can be evaluated on the merits, you know, in practice, the way we evaluate them is not in some abstract philosophical discussion, but, you know, in the seminar room or, you know, in a university hiring committee, And the argument would be, well, yeah, even if in principle, we think two plus two is always four and never five, you know, who's going to be hired and who's going to be promoted, who will be given the chance to make the case that two plus two is this or that is determined by power dynamics and structural issues. And it's really not so much about the theories themselves. It's about the way we talk about theories and the way we promote theories and how we argue about theories and and data and so forth. Um, if you believe that gender race ethnicity disability status whatever that 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 those are all those play a role in how we talk about things and argue about things then you might say those characteristics need to be taken into consider- consideration even if you don't
0: believe they ultimately you know determine whether something is true or false but this idea that there's a more argumentative or adversarial approach to pursuing our profession versus a more cooperative or social approach, i mean this to me sounds like it gets all the way to epistemology it does I- I- indeed but 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 uh, but again, there is there is a little bit of a sociological aspect to it
1: as well in the following sense uh, there's a culture to the mainstream economics profession and, and it is different i mean jeff you know i've I've taught in an economics department I've taught in Uh, a management department of a business school. I taught in an ag and resource economics department. There are different cultures just in terms of the way people interact. Econ is known for a particularly, how shall I say? I don't want to say it's a nasty culture. Uh, Maybe it's better described as a snarky culture, (laughs) right? So when an, when an academic economist or a professional economist pre- presents research in front of a seminar crowd, it's usually pretty feisty. Lots of objections, even from the you know opening sentence, people are pointing out flaws and criticisms. And I, I think it is fair to say that that culture promotes a dynamic where sometimes people are raising objections just to show how clever they themselves are, not because they really have a substantive Objection to what's being said. You won't find that at the Mises Institute, at the AERC, or really within the Austrian community. But within the community of economists at large, there is a little bit of a, you know, uh, an emphasis on one-upsmanship and just sort of being clever and being very argumentative. That's, That's completely different if you go to an academic seminar in history or in political science, or in sociology, people are quiet and respectful. They don't ask many questions. You might get a friendly softball question at the end. Jeff, I personally prefer the former to the latter. I find the latter to be dull and uninformative, but I do recognize that for some people, the former style you know, is sort of grading or you know, it rubs some people the wrong way. So partly tied up in this conversation, I think is the view, maybe you see it on Twitter too, that economists are kind of they like to be nasty to each other and people who aren't familiar people don't understand that that's just sort of the culture they may think oh this is you know this is misogyny or this is uh you know this is sort of some sort of inappropriate behavior uh, that that needs to be stamped out and so i think outsiders who look at these things on twitter right what 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 Krugman wrote about Stephanie Kelton on twitter what Noah Smith wrote uh, Jason Furman is another one who Uh, you know, respectfully, but very strongly criticized what was in that Stephanie Kelton piece. I think there's some outsiders who would look at that and say, oh, that's really nasty. And it's it's males, you know, older males saying nasty things about a female. In Stephanie Kelton's case, a female of the same age, in the case of the author of the New York Times piece, a younger female, you know, oh, that looks like bullying. It looks like, uh, uh, you know, just aggressive. It looks like nastiness. I think most economists and probably a lot of academics who looked at those Twitter threads thought they didn't think that at all. I mean, didn't just it was just sort of this is the typical this is the way
0: we talk on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, it's a bit of a perception issue, I think. But when it comes to an adversarial debate, what if economics is really being practiced on Twitter more than it is in an academic yeah. setting at this point? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. I mean, look, also, if you think about what goes goes on behind the scenes in the journal ref- review process, I mean, that's highly adversarial. And referee reviewer comments and economics are, even if they actually like your paper, they tend to be very negative and very discouraging. And I mean, but the view is that's how we arrive at truth or something we think is truth through this adversarial argumentative process. I don't know how journal reviewing would work. If reviewers were expected to just be lovey-dovey towards authors, I mean, then how would we sort of ever figure out what ideas are true and what what ideas aren't true? So there certainly is a epistemologically, we we do need an adversarial culture to some degree. Otherwise, we can never sort of figure things out. We have to test our ideas against other people's ideas and throw out, you know, reveal our evidence and let other people challenge that evidence and so forth. You know, can that be done with a little bit less of an edge? I mean, who, who knows? But um, I think in general, the, the sort of more adversarial culture of economics has probably been to economics' advantage, right? It's led to more maturity,
0: greater development, better ideas coming out than in fields where you don't have that kind of culture. Well, if economics is being infused with identity, it's also infused with politics, right? I mean, a lot of the almost reflexive support or distaste for MMT. For example, probably falls a little bit along one's ideological or political views.
1: Jeff, there's no doubt about it, and in fact, I, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, you know, for, for for us as you know, as Austrian school adherents, how do we respond to the criticism of mainstream economists like like Noah Smith and Krugman and Furman? Uh, you know, part of their criticism of MMT is it's nonsense it's not you know but, but part of their criticism is well mmt is not really a proper economic it's not a set of proper economic theories because it doesn't use formal mathematical models right so the natural you know of course well wait a minute what about us austrians typically don't use formal mathematical models either uh, are we also not scientific just like mmt well in fact in some of these twitter threads some snarky people said the same thing oh yeah what's what's going to be next is the New York Times going to profile Austrian economists and take them seriously? Ha, ha, ha. What a joke. <laughs> right. So so how do, how do you and I respond to that? We could say, oh, well, uh, you know, you, you heard our feelings uh, or we could say, no, no. But unlike M- MMT, Austrian economics is a serious discipline, even though we don't use formal models that wouldn't convince Krugman and Furman and Smith. Right. But I think the the better response is the one that you just hit on. Uh something like MMT, uh, even though it is sort of way out of step with what most mainstream economists do and how they think, it actually gets a lot more favorable treatment than the Austrian school would get precisely because it is on the far left, right? I mean, the New York Times would never write a glowing profile of Joe Salerno or Peter Klein or Hans Hoppe Right, how they are bucking the mainstream conventions because the New York Times, as an institution, you know, opposes every view that we hold. But because the conclusions of MMT are we need more government spending, more fiscal and monetary stimulus, um, you know, resource constraints don't matter. We can always spend our way out of a you know out of a hole. Well, gosh, that's exactly what everybody on the New York Times believes anyway. So of course they're going to give a sympathetic treatment. To even a, 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 a sort of fringy movement that espouses those views, and that it has a female face doesn't hurt either. Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Although I, I, the funniest thing to me in Larry Summers' comments on MMT on the Kelton piece. Is that he said? Uh, in one of his Twitter threads, he said, "Yes, it, it's crazy that uh, the, the New York Times is giving this favorable coverage to MMT." Now, I do think this is this is Summers. You know, I I do think that we should take some alternative schools of thought seriously, like Marxian economics and post-Keynesian economics. The New York Times ought to be writing about those as valid alternatives to. Uh, To to mainstream economics, and of course, you know my reaction, yours was probably the same as, oh my gosh, if anything is even more kooky than MMT, it's Marx, it's Marxist economics and post-Keynesian economics. So that would, you know, that's that's definitely not a step in the right direction.
0: Well, the one thing about MMT, how it would look in practice, I think would be more transparent, perhaps than the more circuitous system, we have now a monetization of debt, right? I mean, we could see what Congress was doing and spending and what the Treasury was issuing. Uh, in, in theory, anyway, MMT doesn't even require a yeah. central bank. No, no, it, it, that's a good
1: point. And actually, I mean, w- uh, I guess we don't have time on this podcast to get into a lot of the details about MMT. But I mean, in many ways, I have a little bit of sympathy for the MMT, you know, for MMT proponents, because, um, you know, it's it's really not that different from mainstream Keynesian style macro. It, you know, it differs in its manner of expression and, uh, you know, it's, it's different on the edges, right? I mean, really the, ultimately what it comes down to in terms of the differences between mainstream Keynesian macro and MMT style macro is, you know, do you think that in practice empirically resource constraints are going to be binding enough, you know, that if excessive, excessive debt and monetary expansion will lead to inflation right the underlying analytics are really not all that different it's just you know if if you if if i can put it this way mmt is almost a reductio ad absurdum of mainstream Paul Samuelson style Keynesianism and of course the Keynesians don't want to put it that way because it doesn't make them look so good. I think that may be one of the reasons why they're so eager to denounce and distance themselves from MMT because maybe they recognize MMT is really a close cousin. It's like if you take everything that we as Keynesians say seriously, it kind of leads to MMT. Well, if you're a Keynesian, you probably don't want you don't want people thinking thinking that way.
0: Well, I'd like to close the show with some optimism. Universities may be deeply left-wing in orientation. It may be very tough for a young white male, let's be frank, to get a job in certain academic settings in terms of a tenure-track professorship. But the upside here, Peter, is that young PhD Uh, Graduates in economics—they are getting hired. I mean, it's a pretty bright job market. It might be at a place like Amazon uh, instead of the Fed, but I mean, people are getting jobs.
1: No, it's it's a good point. I mean, the academic market, uh, of course, has been a little bit depressed in the last few years, and and as at the moment, right, firms that are that are interested in people with good technical skills and people who understand how the economy works, you know, they are let's put it this way, they pay a price in the marketplace for hiring on something other than competence and expertise, right? They have to, these firms have to pass the market test every day. Universities do not, right? Universities are either state-owned enterprises or, or non-profit uh, private uh, organizations. They don't meet any sort of market test. It's really, you, you don't pay much of a price for indulging uh, a weird ideological or demographic preference, uh, whereas you do not as much as maybe we would like in an interventionist economy, but you do to some extent if you're hiring at Amazon or Google or or, or Apple. So, yeah, maybe there are better opportunities for for uh, academic economists and, and others who don't want to play that game, the game we've been talking about, to go into the private sector
0: or to go work for a really effective nonprofit
1: organization like the Mises Institute.
0: Well, I still think there's a great case for studying economics, whether you're going to make that your profession or not. I think everybody should. And so uh, as we wrap up the show, we're going to link to the Stephanie Kelton uh, puff piece, as it's being called in the New York Times. We're also going to link to Noah Smith, formerly Bloomberg, his Substack article uh, from a macroeconomic perspective on why it was so wrong and why they shouldn't be celebrating that. So you might find that interesting uh, if you studied or followed MMT at all. So I want to thank Peter Klein for his time today. I want to thank all of you for listening and stay tuned as we make a special announcement at the end of the show. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jeff. As promised, we are going to wrap up today's show with a special announcement of sorts. And it's actually fitting that Peter Klein was our final guest today because three years ago, in February of 2019, Peter Klein was our first guest when we changed up the podcast from the old format, which was called Mises Weekends, into the Human Action Podcast, the name we have for the show today, and changed our focus to books. And, of course, Peter's show back in February of 2019 was called Economics is a Mess, and we talk about the profession of economics and what's wrong with it. And so to bookend that, we had a similar conversation today about whether economics is sexist, racist, classist, et cetera today. So I think that's all very fitting but as mentioned, I have an announcement, and that is, to use the terrible parlance of our time, a rebranding of sorts of the Human Action Podcast. It has been focused on books over these last three years, and we have gone through quite a few of them. We printed out actually the list of shows and books, and I just wanted to refresh your memory if you've been a listener of this show, and we hope you have, and we appreciate it if you have been. But here's just a, a sampling of some of the books we have gone over, considered, reviewed, discussed, wrestled with over the past three years. Of course, we started out with Menger himself and went through his principles of economics, uh, went through Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson, needless to say. With multiple guests, oftentimes multiple shows, we worked our way through a lot of the major Mises' works. Of course, a multi-episode show on human action, but we also covered bureaucracy, The anti-capitalistic mentality, socialism. Uh, So made our way through a lot of Mises, and then as far as Rothbard, uh, Man, Economy, and State was Herculean effort. We had multiple shows, multiple guests on that. But in addition, we actually covered the case against the Fed. What has government done to our money? Had a great show on Anatomy of the State. Had a great show, I believe, with Tom Woods on the Betrayal of the American Right. Enjoyed that, and of course. A few episodes on the ethics of liberty and i think the last thing we did from rothbard was several shows on his two volume uh, thousand page uh, history of economic thought so really enjoyed and learned a lot from that which was really my personally my first time my first foray through that book and of course we covered some Hoppe, we covered his uh, views on praxeology and method we covered democracy the god that failed in a couple different episodes and his argumentation ethics. So enjoyed that along the way. And sometimes we took a break from the main thrust of Austrian economics and considered some other authors or some one-off books. We spoke a couple different times to and Amus, the great economist who wrote The Bitcoin Standard. Uh, we talked to Per Byland on his book, The Seen, The Unseen, and The Unrealized, and had him on several shows. Had a special show, if I recall, with Jeff Booth, Who's a pretty uh, interesting guy, pretty famous in Bitcoin circles. He wrote a book about deflation called The Price of Tomorrow. Went back in time a little bit and discussed Adam Ferguson's great book, uh, When Money Dies. We got Had a lot of interest in that show. Gave away a lot of copies of that. A very sobering tale of what happens in a hyperinflationary environment. I uh, talked to a gentleman named Ross Bennis, who wrote a book called The Rural Rebellion, which is about sort of the shifting between blue and red states and his experiences having grown up in a deeply red one, but living in New York City in a deeply blue environment. That was really interesting. And of course, we covered the newest book by Mark Spitznagel, uh, the hedge fund investor who's also a big fan of Austrian economics and the Mises Institute. Uh, His book, Safe Haven, uh, which is a little more mathematical than his earlier book, The Dow of Capital. That was a very, very interesting read. Occasionally, we would allow ourselves even to do essays like Garrett Garrett's The Revolution was. So I really enjoyed going back and looking at some of the essays and some of the figures in the old right uh, with people like James Bovard. And a couple of times, we even went a little off the reservation and discussed a novel, one of my childhood favorites, All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Marie Remarque, which was uh, obviously a seminal anti-war novel. And uh, with my friend, Alan Menenhall, we covered the uh, British satirist, Kingsley Amos, and his novel, Lucky Jim. So over the course of these three years, wow, uh, we have really heard from some brilliant people, economists and otherwise, people like Hans-Hermann Hoppe, uh, Peter and Sandy Klein, of course, Mark Thornton, Bob Murphy multiple times, Jeffrey Herbner and Sean Rittenauer, both at Grove City College were guests, uh, Guido Halsman was a guest, both Patrick Newman and Jonathan Newman were frequent guests. We heard several times from Tom Woods, from Walter Block, uh, from Liliana Stern, Professor Stern across the way here at Auburn University, from Roberto Mondugno in Italy. Uh, just a great cast of guests and characters to help me as professional economists hopefully bring the Austrian school to life and to make it more understandable for a lay audience. But like I said, we are rebranding, we are changing focus a bit. The The books podcast, I think, has run its course. There's always more books. We could spend years and years and years uh, reading them and working our way through them and hopefully getting you to read them and have an interest in them. But It just feels like it's time for a change. So we are going to keep the name. It's still going to be called the Human Action Podcast. It's still going to come out on Friday afternoons. But now it is going to shift into more of a pure political economy show from an Austrian perspective. What do I mean by political economy? What I mean is we're going to study current events and politics through the lens of economics, the intersection of politics and economics as opposed to sticking to books and essays. So it will be less theoretical. It'll be more focused on what's happening in the world right now. Uh, As of today, we find out that January inflation was 7.5% official CPI. If you listen to Peter Schiff, it's probably more like double that, maybe 15%. So prices are rising, uh, everything that's going on. Today's show about MMT and the brouhaha surrounding uh, an article in the New York Times, that would be the kind of thing where we would bring together current events, something happening in the Twitterverse, but also talk about the underlying flaws in MMT. And again, on the old show, we did uh, cover that subject, I think once or twice at least. But it's going to be, I think, liberating both for myself and for the audience to not have to go through books, to not have to deal with that much reading. Uh, and that much heavy content each week, but to rather uh, take a look at the world around us and using Austrian principles and an Austrian lens, try to explain some of these things that are going on. So it's not going to be a libertarian show. It's not going to be a political show. So an example would be if Hillary Clinton decides to run for president in 2024, and I think she will, by the way. Uh, you know, we wouldn't cover that on the show per se. But if Hillary Clinton makes a particularly bad economic pronouncement then that's the kind of thing that would be absolute fodder for the show. So the second part of our announcement is I'm going to have a co-host, and that is going to be none other than the great Bob Murphy, who has just finished, of course, his book on money mechanics, uh, which we published uh, in the fall, well, actually closer to Christmas here at the Mises Institute. It's a book you have to read if you haven't already. And it's got separate chapters on all kinds of things, including inflation and the origins of it. So Bob and I are going to do a show at the end of every week. We're going to sort of look back at the week that perished, to borrow a phrase from Taki Mag. And we are going to really apply an unstinting Austrian perspective to explain all this. So when Stephanie Kelton is arguing with Noah, Opinion, Noah Smith on Twitter or Paul Krugman or Larry Summers, you know, we're going to be able to come along and say, you know what, both of these camps are wrong. Uh, yes, Larry Summers is right that MMT is flawed, but he's right for the wrong reasons, and we're going to explain it. So I'll be looking at current events and coming up with topics and feeding those to Bob. Bob will play the role of the economist who's helping us understand and explain things from an Austrian perspective, but much more current real-world things, current real-world topics. So we might call it applied economics, but it's definitely going to be a political economy show. And I think it's going to be totally unique in the sense that there really aren't a lot of political economy shows out there. There are certainly economics podcasts. And there are certainly podcasts talking about various players in economics. But there is not, to my knowledge, a show from an Austrian perspective that is really looking at current events and explaining them in terms of economics. So I'm excited about the show. It'll debut in just about two weeks. It is going to have a video component. A lot of people over the years have asked, why don't we do the Human Action podcast Uh, via YouTube with video as opposed to audio only. And I always resisted that somewhat, but we're going to change that up. I think that's what the marketplace wants. And we're going to continue to have great guests like some of the people I mentioned, but it's primarily going to be me and Bob Murphy uh, talking about the world, but bringing Austrian economics to life and hopefully making it vital and applying it to what's going on in the world. So stay tuned for that. The Human Action Podcast persists. We'll probably have some different music. We'll probably have some different graphics. But it's going to be a great show. Uh, We're going to want all of you to share it and boost it. And I think you're going to find that uh, a lot of your friends and family might have a greater interest in trying to understand the world and what's going on in the world through a lens of economics as we find our economy devolving. I'm not sure that Build Back Better is going to work. I'm not sure that the, the what the Fed's doing with interest rates. I'm not sure that supply chains are going to fix themselves, at least not in time for these midterm elections coming up, which the Biden administration is facing. So there's going to be plenty to talk about, and we're going to really apply, uh, as I said, a cutting-edge lens, uh, a, a no BS, no filtered lens. To what's happening in the world. So, I hope you will all stay tuned. I hope you will all subscribe to the Human Action Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And I hope that you will all help us share this show to bring it to bigger and better and wider audiences. So, stay tuned for the newly reformatted and rebranded Human Action Podcast in just a couple weeks. Thanks for listening.